Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 38. Last week, I covered the history of the Battle of Siddam. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, since the area was embedded in the Battle of Siddam narrative in Genesis, I'm beginning the history of Syria. But first, a correction. So after the publication of last week's episode, it came to my attention that I was mispronouncing the name Shedoliomer. In fact, after going back and re-listening, which is always a bit painful, it became even more clear just how many times I used the name. Anyway, if you've been listening for a while, you know that I have murdered many a name, and this will no doubt not be the last. Only to make it worse, I have pronounced it correctly in the past, but not this time. So it's really pronounced Shedoliomer, not Chedolomir. Such is life. And now to move on to Syria, which of course is much easier to pronounce. So let's get started. The oldest human remains found in Syria date from the Paleolithic era, sometime around 800,000 BC. Once again, this is the date proposed by archaeologists, and these are not my dates. In 1993, a joint Japanese-Syrian archaeological team discovered fossilized Paleolithic human remains at the Dedria Cave about 250 miles or 400 kilometers north of Damascus. The skeletal remains found in this gigantic cave were of a two-year-old Neanderthal child. This youngster lived in what is generally referred to as the Middle Paleolithic Era, which was from about 200,000 to 40,000 years ago. Previous to this, many Neanderthal bones had been discovered in the area, but this was the first time that an almost complete child skeleton had been found in its undisturbed burial condition. Archaeologists believe that the civilization in Syria is among the earliest on Earth. As you should know by now, Syria is located in the Fertile Crescent, and since about 10,000 BC, it was one of the hubs of the Neolithic culture where agriculture and cattle domestication first appeared. The Neolithic period in this area of the world is epitomized by rectangular houses of the Meribet culture. In the early Neolithic period, the area's inhabitants used bowls made of stone and burnt lime. Also, obsidian tools from Anatolia have been found, which demonstrate there was some form of what they would consider to be long-distance trade. The distance is a few hundred miles and 1.6 times as many kilometers. To us, that may seem short, but to them, it was a place far, far away. Researchers believe that the cities of Hamarkar in what is now northwestern Syria and Amar in north-central Syria flourished during the late Neolithic and Bronze Age. A sidebar on the Muriabet. Muriabet is a tell, meaning an ancient settlement mound. It is located on the west bank of the Euphrates River in what is now northern Syria. The site was first excavated in 1964, a project that lasted for about 10 years. It was initially discovered during an archaeological survey of the region directed by Martis van Loon of the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago, with a small exploratory dig occurring at the time. In 1965, van Loon conducted a more extensive excavation. Work ceased for about six years. Then between 1971 and 1974, Jacques Cavan led an excavation team from the French Scientific Research Center. Eventually, control of the excavations was assumed by UNESCO, 
an arm of the United Nations. The excavation reached a fevered pitch as the area became threatened by the creation of Lake Assad, a man-made reservoir formed by the Tabqa Dam, which was being built at the time. The eventual flooding of Lake Assad led to Muriabet becoming covered by water in 1976. Today, the site is still submerged and no longer accessible, but the artifacts that were retrieved during the excavations continue to cultivate new research and lead to new theories. This material is currently stored at the National Museum of Aleppo and the Institut des Préhistoires Orientales in France. But, given the destruction in Aleppo, its present condition is unfortunately unknown. Mariabet is thought to have been occupied between 10,200 and 8,000 BC. It is also the namesake of the Mariabetian culture. In its early history, and I'm using that word rather loosely, Mariabet was a small village occupied by hunter-gatherers. During the culture's later history, animal domestication occurred. Mariabet is found on an elongated ridge that is about 13 feet or 4 meters above the banks of the Euphrates River. The river, before the area was flooded, ran directly west of the site. The tail measured 250 feet or 75 meters in diameter and about 20 feet or 6 meters high. The climate of Mariabet at the time of its occupation is thought to have been very different from what it is today. Well, what it was before it flooded. When Mariabet was first occupied, about 10,200 BC, the climate was slightly colder and more humid than today. This was an effect of what is called the Younger Dryas climate change event. The Younger Dryas event saw a sharp decline in temperature over most of the northern hemisphere at a time that immediately preceded the current warmer Holocene. It was the most recent and longest of several interruptions to the gradual warming of the Earth's climate since the severe last glacial maximum, which occurred around 27,000 to 24,000 years ago. The Younger Dryas is thought to have been a relatively sudden event, taking place in decades instead of centuries. It resulted in a decline of 4 to 11 degrees Fahrenheit or 2 to 6 degrees Celsius. It also led to the growth of glaciers in more northern latitudes, but certainly not in Syria. Also, the air was drier over much of the temperate northern hemisphere. The event is thought to have been caused by a decline in the strength of the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation. That is a really complicated phrase that essentially means the currents that transport warm water from the equator towards the North Pole decreased. This is thought to have been caused by an influx of fresh cold water from North America into the Atlantic. The Younger Dryas event was a period of climatic change, and overall the effects were complex and variable, so much so that in the Southern Hemisphere, as well as a few parts of the Northern Hemisphere, such as Southeastern North America, there was a slight warming. Go figure. At Mariabet, the annual rainfall increased slightly from 9 inches or 23 centimeters to 11 inches or 28 centimeters. At the time, the native vegetation consisted of open forest steppe with species like cashew, almond, and wild cereals. An open forest steppe is an area where forest transitions to prairie. By way of example, in North America, this is similar to what is seen in North Dakota and central Saskatchewan. In Syria today, the area is obviously drier and therefore more of a desert climate. The excavations revealed that there were probably four different occupation phases that ran from about 10,200 to 8,000 BC, based on radiocarbon dating. 
Phase 1 was from 10,200 to 9,700 BC and represents the Natufian occupation of Muriabet. It is differentiated by fireplaces and cooking pits, but no dwelling structures have been identified, at least not yet. Among the crops that were harvested were barley and rye, and there is the possibility that these were also cultivated. Also, a few sickle blades and hand grain mills have been found. The inhabitants of Muriabet hunted gazelle and wild donkeys, and also fished for sustenance. Apparently, they had domesticated dogs. Phase 2 ran from about 9700 to 9300 BC, and is generally referred to as the Chameleon. But, overall, this period is poorly understood and sometimes referred to as a subphase, which essentially straddles the Natufian and the Pre-Pottery and Neolithic period. Throughout the region, Muriabet is the only site where Chameleon deposits are associated with architectural artifacts. The oldest of these artifacts consists of a round, semi-subterranean structure with a diameter of 20 feet or 6 meters. In the phases that followed, slightly smaller roundhouses were built at ground level. The walls of these structures were built from compacted soil, sometimes reinforced with rocks. At the time, fireplaces and cooking pits were located outside of the buildings. During Phase 2, harvested crops included barley, rye, and buckwheat. Sickle blades and grinding stones were frequently found from the period and tend to show more wear than those from Phase 1 probably resulting from greater use. This is thought to indicate that cereals became an important component in the diet. The animals hunted in the Muriabet changed significantly during Phase 2. Gazelles made up about 70% of the bone finds and small animals decreased in importance, though it appears that fish remained essential to their diet. Toward the end of the phase, it appears that the hunting of wild donkeys surpassed that of gazelles. Phase 3 ran from about 9300 to 8600 BC and is characterized by the Muriabetians themselves. Architecture was beginning to diversify, now with rectangular, multi-room buildings appearing next to the older style round buildings. Walls were typically built from cigar-shaped stones, probably shaped by the inhabitants, but below-grade structures continued to be used. These are sometimes compared to similar structures found at nearby Jerf el Amar. At this location, it is thought that the structures were distinct buildings with a communal function. Many rooms in the rectangular buildings were extremely tiny and were probably used for storage. In Phase 3, fireplaces and cooking pits lined with stones continued to be located outside of the buildings. The third phase in the history of Muriabet saw the consumption of wild varieties of barley, rye, and einkorn. Hopefully you are familiar with barley and rye, and I covered einkorn earlier in this chapter of the podcast. There is some archaeological evidence that indicates that these cereals were farmed rather than gathered. Also during this phase, the consumption of wild donkeys continued, and there is evidence that wild cattle were hunted. There was little hunting of gazelle, but to be honest, if I were the hunter armed with rudimentary weapons and spent much of my time stalking prey, I too would probably go after the slower, less nimble donkey and cow instead of the sprightly gazelle. Surprisingly, excavations have yielded little evidence of the consumption of fish during this phase. Researchers also proposed that in Phase 3, animal hides were processed at the site using bone and stone tools. 
Once again, another reason to hunt a donkey or a wild cow. Put those two beasts side by side with a gazelle, and besides having more meat, you get more clothing with less effort. I'll take Behavioral Economics 101, Alex. Finally, and certainly not leastly, the earliest known writing for record-keeping evolved from a system of counting using small clay tokens, both of which were seemingly developed in Phase 3. And I cannot emphasize the importance of this find. This is the beginning of culture as we know it. In world history, the invention, or gift, depending on your perspective, of writing and counting is a dividing line. More important than the wheel, and certainly more important than sliced bread. And, before you write in, I recognize that leastly is not an accepted word. But I'm sure the individual Murray Betian who first started writing was met with resistance, too. The evidence of clay token counting and writing for record keeping coincided with a period of explosive growth of the use of cereal in this region. Correlation, most certainly. Causation, most probably. Finally, as you probably can deduce, there was a fourth phase of the Muribetian settlement. It was from about 8600 to 8000 BC. Unfortunately, there have been few architectural finds from this period, just some mud-walled rectangular structures. Now this may be simply the result of building with biodegradable materials such as wood, or it may indicate something else entirely. Also, there have been no domesticated grains found, but this may be a result of the very small samples found so far from this time period. Early in the period, hunting continued to be dependent on wild donkeys with a secondary focus still on wild cattle. But this is the period where animal domestication really took off. As I mentioned before, there had been the domestication of dogs. In period 4, there is evidence of the taming of sheep and goats, and probably also cattle. Gazelles continued to benefit from their speed and agility. The excavation of Muriabat produced a profusion of stone tools. During all four periods, the primary raw material for tools was flint, which was obtained from local sources. Obsidian was much less common, but still used for tools. Of course, this was during the Stone Age. Phase 1 stone tools included points, wood carving tools, scrapers, bores, and picks used for woodworking. Flint arrowheads appeared in Phase 2. Other stone tools from Phase 2 included chisels, scrapers, and boring bits. It's those boring bits I try really hard to avoid. Phase 3 tools included improved arrowheads, and Phase 4 showed improvements in all of the tools, but not really any new ones. All of the phases also had tools and objects made from sources other than stone. Phase 1 had jewelry made from pierced shells as well as small stone and shell discs. In Phase 1, a few bone tools were found, and during Phase 2, bone was used for needles and awls. Also during this period, beads were made from stone, freshwater shells, and bone. Artifacts found included limestone bowls, beads, and pendants, including one from ivory, and eight figurines made from limestone and baked clay. By the way, there was no known local source of ivory. It probably came from Eastern Asia or Africa and made it to Syria through long-distance trade. And that's the prehistoric background for Syria. Next week, I'll begin the history of the time closer to the narrative of the Old Testament. You don't want to miss it. As always, 
You can find information about the podcast on the internet at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, if you're so inclined, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, and I really do hope you are, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Finally, go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.